podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Emily Wong. She's a physician here at Yale University. Uh, let her tell us a little bit more about herself. Thanks, Max. Uh, so uh, I am uh, an internist, a primary care provider. I spend most of my time doing research for the past 12 years, really focused on the health of individuals, families, and communities that have been impacted by mass incarceration. And so I have the rare privilege, I think, of medicine of both being able to deliver care for people uh, that have come home from correctional facilities and care for them in primary care systems, as well as really drive the science of how we can improve uh, their health and health outcomes uh, once they've come home. Thank you. Um, and so my understanding is you started doing this work about 12 years ago when you were in San Francisco and then moved here, and then it's gotten um, kind of even more global now with the Transitions Clinic Network. Yeah, uh, I think I was in residency, and I actually had gone to residency really interested in this issue. I had experiences in medical school where I was able to uh, work in the North Carolina Correctional Institute for Women and then spend time a year in Botswana um, in the prison system. And for me, one of the kind of key issues that I noticed in, in being able to work in two different prison systems in uh, different countries is how vastly different our criminal justice systems are structured and how they kind of lead to inevitable poor health outcomes. Um, what's interesting is in the U.S., people are constitutionally guaranteed health care when they're incarcerated. And then back then, there was no constitutional guarantees to uh, any health care uh, following release. And so went to residency, really kind of obsessed with this, you know, and I can remember a few patients that I saw in the emergency department that had just been released from local prisons. Um, and they were released at stupid things, you know, that they had been diagnosed with diabetes when they were inside and then released at home with no insulin, no glucometer, didn't know how to kind of even in, uh, inject themselves, and then came into the emergency department uh, with, you know, hyperglycemia, um, a DK-like picture. And that, to me, spoke to kind of real inefficiencies of two health systems. And so... Um, in San Francisco with a colleague and friend of mine, uh, Clemens Hong, we were able to start visioning a, a program which put the values and preferences and needs of people uh, that have uh, experienced incarceration first and ask them how it is that they'd want the health system and the community to be restructured uh, and what were the key components of that. And that was kind of the first Transitions Clinic program. Mm -hmm. And so how many clinics now are part of the network? Well, our, our network is, is growing. I mean, from that first program out in San Francisco, um, it has been... Uh, we studied it, studied mm -hmm. it uh, using a randomized control trial and um, design in San Francisco and found that there was efficacy in uh, reducing emergency department visits um, among those that were, uh, you know, assigned to Transitions Clinic. And so based on that evidence and based on the actual need, right, that we really have programs that really think about uh, the health of uh, individuals that come home, um, we have been able to slowly, iteratively build. And so uh, currently, I think we've had programs in uh, 29 uh, different community health centers um, in 12 states and in Puerto Rico. And this year, we have that new opportunity of uh, received recent funding so that we're going to start another 25 programs in California. Wow, that's really exciting. And so let me ask you, how do you feel, so given that you've started to study um, 
the the sort of impact that these transition clinics have both on the individual's health but also um, on the healthcare system. How do you find the this ongoing research um, in terms of its role in the overall sort of theme of addressing health disparities in medical research? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's part of the research agenda that we have is really making certain that uh, the program that we've designed actually uh, provides the results that we intend it to provide. And so, you know, um, there are many things that we do in medicine for which there's no evidence. Mm -hmm. We invest a lot of resources into programs that you think would make sense. You know, um, this program ostensibly is filling a need that didn't exist before. And yet you can't actually be certain that it's actually going to produce the health outcomes that you expect or produce kind of the system transformation that you might expect without good data. And so... Uh, we've put our uh, heads to really thinking about um, how it is that you can study uh, ethically this sort of program uh, when prior to this program there was nothing in, uh, in terms of a transitional program. You know, prior to this, you we know already that the rates of dying are incredibly high post-release, the rates of hospitalization are incredibly high, uh, the rates of poor health outcomes are high. And so uh, if that's the situation now, and then, you know, you're saying that you're going to design studies that study its efficacy and randomize people, you know, what is the ethics of mm-hmm. randomizing people to those scenarios? And so... We've thought hard about how it is that you uh, do this sort of science. The science that we're engaging in is uh, fundamentally participatory, where we have people with histories of incarceration working alongside us at the very beginning of the research question through to the design, the implementation, and even the dissemination. And so that first study that I alluded to, uh, you know, when I said that we did a randomized controlled trial, what we decided what was ethical was actually... um, enabling everyone a first two-week appointment in that transitional time, in that time that's most at risk, mm-hmm. got them a health a system appointment within two weeks, and then did a randomized study where they would either stay in care with us or uh, continue on with a guaranteed appointment within the safety net of San Francisco within four weeks. And still we found about uh, 50% uh, decreased emergency department visits among those that were randomized in transitions. And so um, in, in this scenario, this was one that our you know academic community partnership felt like it was an equitable way of studying kind of the efficacy of transitions um, that would produce an answer, uh, potentially kind of biasing our study towards not finding a difference at all because both arms are getting a treatment Mm -hmm. um, and we still did find a a difference. And so um, in thinking about how it is that we've designed these studies, we're really trying to keep our patients at the fore, really thinking about equity in research design, how it is that you can uh, do science in a participatory manner and still uh, um, uh, find meaningful results that can guide our work forward. And so Um, To that end, we've also uh, conducted studies where we haven't randomized individuals but are studying other issues. So uh, we used kind of statistical methods to find a comparison group here in Connecticut where we had individuals that received care in transitions in Connecticut compared with those that were just released that were similar to people that... uh, Um, We're seeing in transitions in terms of their medical severity, in terms of their incarceration history, in terms of their mental health. Um, And in that study, uh, and we in that study, what we wanted to compare is not their health system utilization, 
only, but also look at their contact uh, with the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. Um, And what we found in that study was that uh, among uh, the two groups, um, there were no differences in new arrest rates, there were no differences in conviction, new conviction rates, but what we did find uh, was that there were differences in technical violations, so in violations for parole and probation, um, as well as... uh, decrease in the length of time actually incarcerated. Uh, this was We saw this only among those who are in transitions. And so, again, um, some of what we're really trying to do is, in that study in particular, trying to push the health system to think about how it is that we, as healthcare providers, can play a role, uh, you know, in thinking about the other social determinants in health. Um, you know, our program, as you heard about in other conversations with Dr. Voglisi and Manya, our program is a pretty modest intervention. You know, it's an intervention where we have community health workers that are working alongside healthcare providers in an interdisciplinary team really targeted at that care. And even with that modest intervention, we what we're seeing in our program, at least with the data in Connecticut, is that we're able to move um, that change kind of the outcomes for people uh, um, that are returning home from prison in terms of their future contact with the criminal justice system. And so largely what we try to think about is um, what is it that the health system actually can do mm-hmm. uh, to uh, move uh, uh, criminal justice reform forward? You know? Yeah. So it's sort of like a, not only addressing health outcomes, but also, you know, what's going on in their lives outside of the outside of the hospital or the clinic. Absolutely. I mean, you know, when I think about those studies that we did, we were focused on the health system, and it's partially because if you're working within the health system and we believe that the health system ought to fund programs like this, you know, then you look at health system outcomes. And even our patients would say, well, these aren't the necessarily the outcomes that matter the most to us, mm-hmm. but we can understand that this is important to study because these are health system interventions. Um, but I, I think you've nailed uh, the, the hammer on the head or whatever that phrase is in English, <laughs> which is that, um, you know, for our patients, kind of what they're... Uh, biggest kinds of hopes and dreams are are really trying to um, reintegrate back into their communities, you know, to be able to have stable housing, find a job, reintegrate with their families, and also stay out of the criminal justice system. You know, no one comes home from prison and wants to go back in, you right. know. And so um, it, to us, this is kind of a key issue, is really trying to think about how it is that programs based within health systems can move the needle on the things that actually matter the most to individual uh, health and well-being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so something when we think about criminal justice uh, and criminal justice reform, we don't often think beyond those who are incarcerated. Um, so I'm thinking like their families. Mm-hmm. Um have you done any studies related to families of individuals with incarceration and how the transitions clinic network um, potentially can can also have an impact there? Yeah. So the research actually is quite good showing that, um, and this isn't you know our team's research necessarily that we've done some of this, but others' research, which is that uh, the impacts of incarceration aren't uh, uh, just on the health of those that are uh, are felt just on those uh, that are actually incarcerated. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's quite good uh, 
evidence that especially for the children of individuals whose parents are incarcerated, that there are health impacts uh, as well. Um, we and others have looked at the partners, you know, women in particular whose partners are incarcerated, they too can have worse health outcomes. Um, if uh, their partners are incarcerated, you know, one study that we did looked at um, cardiovascular disease and overall self-reported health and obesity and indeed found that even when you uh, control for previous life course events, their own health behaviors, that actually having a partner incarcerated had uh, um, showed that there was increased odds of uh, obesity and also, you know, poor self-reported health in kind of cardiovascular risk factors moving forward. Um, and then even there's some data out there that shows recently um, that individuals uh, who've never been incarcerated but live in communities with high incarceration rates, mm -hmm. that they have increased elevated cardiovascular risk. Um, and so overall what this does is paint a picture, you know, and it, it's not necessarily causal. It's not saying incarceration has caused this. I mean, these aren't randomized studies or even necessarily... Um, uh, using kind of experimental designs showing this yet, but and we may never get to that, right? But but the point is is that overall that there are likely um, kind of spillover effects that mm -hmm. you know that it's not just that incarceration in and of itself is associated or causes kind of harm to the individual that's incarcerated, um, but also impacts their kids in particular, women whose partners are incarcerated, and even potentially the communities in which there's high rates of incarceration. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um... So you asked the question about transitions. Some of our transitions clinic programs, you know, are run by family uh family medicine practitioners, and they see the whole family. Mm. Um, we certainly, in our own program, have seen um, it, brothers who are incarcerated, father and sons who are incarcerated, because this, in fact, is a uh, multi-generational, intergenerational issue. Mm -hmm. Ma, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Um, just thinking about how big of a task this must be to have been able to contribute to building this effort, I'm wondering... What are some hurdles that you have faced and sort of how you've been able to overcome some of them? Um. Uh, I think one, one key issue is that this is something that, you know, uh, look, you and I have been in a primary care clinic before. We mm -hmm. only have so much time to address so many things in a 15-minute visit, mm -hmm. right? And so to add kind of incarceration to the overflowing plate of mm -hmm. primary care providers is already an issue. And so this argument of saying, like, look, this is yet another social determinant of health that we ought to be addressing for patients, and we never do. We almost never talk about it. We don't get any training in primary care um, residencies or any internal medicine residencies uh, for the most part. I mean, people have done studies looking at this. This is kind of the hard thing is that, um, I think that among those that would see this as a, an issue that kind of um, is addressable, should be addressed, is a social determinant of health, that where's the time, where are the skills, what can you actually do? Mm -hmm. And then the second is, is that there's a whole group of kind of non-believers is that, you know, why should the health system be involved in this at all? And so, you know, the arguments that we make uh, are, are as follows, which is that, in communities where incarceration rates are quite high, this is driving worse health outcomes in your patients. If you don't ask, then you just don't know, but it's happening, right? And so uh, what our network really tries to do is provide um, uh, providers, health systems, the tools with which 
uh, to then be able to start addressing this concretely daily, especially with the addition of a community health worker that uh, has a history of incarceration um, in primary care. And, um, you know, our experience has shown and, and some of our data suggest is that it is doable, that you can intervene on these issues. It's something that you can tackle within primary care, especially with the uh, added resources of a provider that knows how to attend to this in clinic, um, as well as community health workers uh, that have uh, been incarcerated. And so I think that these are some large issues. Um, there's also just larger, even kind of larger system-wide issues, uh, which is that as a health system, um, we don't always attend to the needs of those most vulnerable well, right? Uh, and so... Um, you know, there was just a great study uh, that was uh, recently published in the Annals of Family Medicine. Um, it was an experimental audit study, and so real simple, beautiful in its design, uh, mirroring some of the audit studies that have been done in employment and in housing that have also shown that this issue. So uh, trying to test whether or not there's discrimination in the health system based on criminal record. And so what they did was, and this was conducted in Ontario, Canada, uh, where... Uh, um, there's a national health care system, mm -hmm. okay? So not in a system like ours. Um, and what they did was just had people cold call and trying to get uh, primary care appointments. Uh, and the only difference in the script was uh, that they would say that, hey, I've just been released from a correctional facility, mm -hmm. right? And so what they found was that for those that reported on the phone that they had just been released from a correctional facility, they had about a two times decrease odds of getting a primary care appointment. Mm. compared with those that didn't report that. Um, and so that's kind of the first, you know, I'd say experimentally uh, designed study in the health system that implicates us, that says fully that there is discrimination uh, based in the healthcare system uh, uh, around kind of this issue of a criminal record. You know, they couldn't see the person. They don't kind of, uh, you know, can't tell by voice. It's just literally um, that issue. Uh, and it shouldn't come as a surprise to us. I mean, if you know the literature here in the U.S., um, there's been great studies showing discrimination based on criminal record in all other social domains. Um, but for health system providers, I mean, this should come as a, a you know, a, a call to action. Right. That it's right there, literally, in our face. And this is just getting an appointment. So... You can only imagine that How once they get gets. in, you got it, you got it. And so this is kind of a call to action for us in our network is really to both. We think that this is part of why um, uh, the health system has to be really uh, transformed in thinking about how it is that you provide care for people that have criminal records, that have experiences of incarceration. It's not just that they have higher health needs, that they kind of have a worsening of chronic conditions, that they have kind of worst risk of, of uh, hospitalizations or death post-release. It's not just that. It's not that they're kind of at augmented risks for overdose. We're in a huge opioid um, you know, epidemic right now. Um, it's not just that. It literally is that we we are actively discriminating against people with criminal records. And so, again, why should we be any different than any other social service? We're not. Um, but th that's the call to action. And what do you believe this new study reveals in terms of the ways in which our healthcare system works? 
I mean, it, it, what it reveals, I would say, is just a, uh, a bias within the health system, mm-hmm. right? And, and probably a pretty explicit bias. I mean, you know, we, um, it, I mean, I think that to think that we are immune from discriminatory practices, you know, as healthcare providers, I think is is naive. is the naive and kind of a place of real hubris, as if that we would be any different than any other person or any other kind of organization or institution um, in this country would be ridiculous. And mm-hmm. so, to me, um, in certain ways, that is the beauty of science, which is it shows right there, clear as day, that you know. The only difference in that study between those two callers was the script, right? Of just mm-hmm. saying that, hey, I've just been released from a correctional facility, and the, and again in a system with nationalized healthcare, right? Right, and so you can only imagine if this were study were done in the U.S. how that might play out, mm-hmm. um, and also you can only imagine that again this is just first, you know, asking for an appointment, and so if and when that comes out in conversation, which it often does, you know, for patients they say unknowingly or knowingly, you know, trying to get the doctor to engage or the healthcare provider to engage in these increased risks, like, look, I just came home, you know, this and this is this going, and they don't even realize that this naturally elicits kind of, for some healthcare providers, you know, Mm -hmm. either explicitly or implicitly, a form of bias. Mm -hmm. So the science that um, this network or that you and your colleagues are producing, right, um, could and hopefully will um, contribute to shaping policy um, around criminal justice, but also healthcare. Um, and I'm wondering whether you've had a chance to um, have like a strong collaboration with, um, say, local officials or healthcare administrators to sort of think about. Um, how they can shift existing policies to improve both criminal justice policy or, um, you know, transition type policy, but also healthcare policy in the setting of, say, a healthcare system. Sure. I mean, I, th- I think that there are um, good examples both here within Connecticut and then elsewhere through our network where we've both been in strong partnership with Department of Corrections. Um, policymakers, uh, administrators in particular, uh, as well as health system policymakers and administrators. So, you know, um, to do this work well, you can't work in isolation. In mm-hmm. fact, what we know to be the case is that our own work has shown that um, when the referrals come from Department of Corrections partners uh, or criminal justice system partners, you know, so when a patient referral comes from an agency that's in the criminal justice system, that is actually, uh, um, and, and this is in comparison to referrals that come from the community or the community health workers, in fact, uh, those referrals then are associated with lower uh, healthcare utilization in the 12 months post-release. And so um, to us, what that speaks to is the need for more collaborations. And, you know, the pathways we haven't studied, but we would imagine that it's, you know, communications around medical records, what the health needs are, what are the next steps in the healthcare system, having an appointment arranged prior to release, right? So those that's, that's what it speaks to me, but that hypothesis still needs to be tested. And so given that, I mean, it, it's incumbent upon us to say, of course, we'd have to have partnerships. If we want to see the health of people that move in and out of the prison system, move in and out of the jail system improved, we have to work 
in partnership uh, with uh, correctional policymakers and administrators. Um, and so we've been able to do that in many of the settings in which we have transitions clinic programs, uh, even in settings where we have uh, transitions clinic programs and they haven't you know, expanded Medicaid. Um, uh, one example is that you know, within North Carolina, frequently right now, um, where they haven't expanded Medicaid, the Department of Public Safety is investing uh, with, uh, um, you know, shifting funds to the Department of Public Health so that transitions clinic programs uh, can be built within North Carolina. And so these partnerships um, are happening. They're rooted kind of at the state level, the local level, really trying to help us think about um, how it is that we can scale up and improve the care of people that uh, return home from correctional facilities. Fascinating. Um, and what about healthcare, like, or, or I guess separately in healthcare system settings, um, is there something similar happening? Um, so obviously these clinics are growing, and I'm wondering whether, um, say for example, like here we're at Yale Haven Hospital. So how does the partnership work with YNH? Yeah. So you know, in in certain settings and. There's been uptake at the health system level, mm-hmm. uh, and then in others, uh, you know, there's still kind of um, programs that we're really still trying to engage the health system. And so, uh, a, a, currently in New Haven, right now, um, our strongest partners, we you know, we have three different programs across Connecticut that uh, Dr. Puglisi leads. Um, and so, uh, part of what we're really working with now and uh, in discussions with Uh, state Medicaid directors and the medical directors really thinking about how it is that we could scale in Connecticut, Mm -hmm. uh, thinking about the needs of people that return home. Yeah, so. Thank you. Um, I'm personally really fascinated by all of this. Um, I can also imagine, though, that the work that you do can be a little bit emotionally draining just because of the state of criminal justice in this country. What do you think? You know, in a, spa- a space where uh, my mind has been going is really how it is, you know, that we've gotten to a criminal justice system that's so expansive, that really touches the lives of us all, and has gone beyond kind of these notions of, of uh, uh, public safety, protecting public safety, uh, issues around justice, issues around kind of... Um, punishment, rehabilitation, etc., and how in the conversations right now in criminal justice reform, uh, it's rare that the health system is brought in as a partner in thinking about this. And um, to me, that's a shame. Uh, This is something we're actively working against. If you think about kind of two very strong predictors of reducing kind of an individual's uh, risk of returning back to prison, ones that are born out in the literature, there's two that are squarely in the health system space. So the first is any sort of treatment, but in particular methadone um, for opioid use disorder, that there is strong data across decades that mm-hmm. show that if you get individuals that have opioid use disorder on um, any sort of pharmacologic therapy, but in particular for methadone, there's reductions in return to prisons and jails over time. And that's a health system issue, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is something that, it's not that we do it perfectly, but we're the people that are, are, are charged to do this, so number one. And then secondly, it's employment. People that have jobs are less likely to go back in. And if you look at the numbers, I mean, uh, the health system in the U.S., it's 
growing, it's burgeoning, it's maybe a little grown out of control, but it, we're responsible for one out of five or one out of six of our gross domestic product. One of three new jobs is in the health system industry. I read this from um, uh, AHRQ, uh, a recent printout. And so we in the health system have a real opportunity to think about how it is that we contribute kind of with new jobs, how mm-hmm. it is that we bring these individuals that come home into our workforce, you know. And so to me that these are two easy, obvious paths by which the health system can and should be engaged in criminal justice reform. Um, And so this is what fires me up for Transitions Clinic and our network is really thinking about how the health system can be a real partner um, in shifting and shaping uh, our criminal justice system as it exists. So on a small scale level, I know you you just uh, made me think of this. So, you know, hospitals overall have the opportunity to employ uh, many individuals that were recently incarcerated uh, and through transitions you you're, you employ people who have a history of incarceration so I'm wondering do you have an estimate of how many community health worker uh, with a history of incarceration are part of the network? Oh our, our network only hires people with histories of incarceration and right. so you know uh, currently uh, they're training uh, hundreds of individuals in L.A. County that will have had a history of incarceration to become community health workers. And so as our network grows, I mean, the community of community health workers that have histories of incarceration is growing through our network. That's fantastic. Uh, well, thank you so much um, for your time and for sharing your knowledge and expertise with me. I really appreciate it, and I'm excited to see where your work continues to go. Thanks so much for this opportunity. Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.